nothing really compares to what is happening right now in Xinjiang, China. It's just that is the worst case scenario. It is the week of July 25th, and welcome to the kickoff of our summer series podcast, Breaking Chains, Fighting the New Global Repressors. I'm Lester Munson, your host. All over the world today, we are witnessing nation states such as China, Russia, and Iran cracking down on populations within their borders and expanding their repressive aims transnationally. In our summer series, I will talk to a range of special guests about the stark reality we now face as the rapid development of technology makes it easier for nation-state actors to commit widespread human rights abuses, what can we do to confront these abuses and protect global security? Today's episode will feature Jeffrey Kane, an award-winning foreign correspondent, author, technologist, and scholar of East and Central Asia, as well as an NSI senior fellow. Jeffrey is the author of many works and has covered a wide range of issues across the globe, including his book, The Perfect Police State, an undercover odyssey into China's terrifying surveillance dystopia of the future. Jeffrey, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Lester. So, uh, you know, before we dive into the issues, why don't you tell our listeners about your recent work as a journalist, where you've been and the issues you've been covering? Sure. So I come from a background as a technology journalist and an investigative journalist. I had been um, at The Economist many years back covering some of these topics also for the Wall Street Journal and Time. Um, And uh, during my career, you know, one of the things that I had noticed. um, I I had been living in East Asia. I I was in China, South Korea for many years. Also, um, Turkey. I spent a little time in Cuba, Venezuela, Russia. So I I had been building this, um, you know, this in-person kind of field experience documenting authoritarian regimes, how they rise, how they fall, how they work, you you know, what are sort of the inner workings of, you know, how do they maintain power? And one of the things that I I noticed, um, you know, back maybe about five, six years ago in my career is just that the spread of these novel technologies that were being used to oppress uh, large numbers of people around the world in ways that we hadn't really seen before. So I'm talking about new advances in artificial intelligence, uh, especially uh, you know some purported uh, advances towards general artificial intelligence, which is you know a much more powerful, powerful, powerful version of AI. Uh, that could be used for much stronger purposes, but also uh, facial recognition, voice recognition, um, you know, various advances in semiconductors that were allowing for this tech to to take hold, to get cheaper to take hold um, around the world. And yet, while this was all happening, you know, there was um, a narrative back in the U.S. and Silicon Valley in particular that, uh, you know, these developments by themselves were going to be good for society. They were going to be good for democracy Um, You know, social media just by its nature is going to connect people and create a globalized world and we're headed towards a better future. What I saw in the field, you know, what I saw in in China, in Russia was precisely the opposite. Um, You know, I I, I saw that the age of, you know, you could say the, the neoliberal globalization was starting to come to a close. There were a lot of tumultuous events happening around the world and I wanted to find ways to document uh, that global story. So this is what I've been doing for the past um, two to three years in my books. My most recent book was The Perfect Police State, an undercover odyssey into China's terrifying surveillance dystopia of the future, which is from my time in Western China in the region of Xinjiang, uh, which is home to the Uyghur people. About uh, about one in 10 of the population there has been put uh, in the con- in concentration camps. Um, and, and I've also been in Turkey documenting that story because that's where most of the refugees go. So this is what I'm doing now. 
So, Jeffrey, uh, I think I think a lot of folks um, are a little, you know, folks, our listeners probably a little bit familiar with those issues. Tell us, like, as though as a journalist, as a person on the ground, how did you get access to Xinjiang province? How did, did the Chinese let you in? Did they know you were there? What's your status now? Give us like kind of the give and take on your actual presence in China. So I could not write any of the book in China. Um, that would just be a major security risk to all my sources, everyone who I had bumped into or met. Um, they would certainly end up in a concentration camp or at minimum, you know, being questioned by the police for hours. So I, uh, I purposely minimized my time in the region of Xinjiang, but when I did go there, I always went on tourist visas. I uh, looked like I was a backpacker. I, I dressed in ways that you know were kind of um, low key. I didn't want to stick out. Uh, and you know this this strategy worked for a while because tourists do travel through the region. At least when I would you know five years ago, there were still tourists. Um, traveling in and out of this region. There, there are all kinds of touristic sites along the Silk Road, you know, old uh, Buddhist temples and Islamic sites. I, like it actually is a place that people um, do visit. And so uh, I was able to get away with this for a while. I had been visiting the region since 2009, which was a year when mass protests um, sparked up and just, and you know, threatened part of the Communist Party's hold in this region. And I had gone back over the years, um, so five times uh, since 2009. Uh, my final trip was in 2017, and that was when I stepped off the airplane from Beijing in the city of Kashgar. Uh, Kashgar is the Uyghur heartland of the region. It, it sort of borders um, near Kyrgyzstan, a little bit, you know, kind of near Afghanistan and Pakistan, that sort of region. Uh, it is just, you know, it's a beautiful place. I mean, it's it's just a gorgeous little town. But, uh, yeah, like, on this last trip, it was just, like, I stepped off the airplane, and it was uh, a science fiction novel. It, it was, you know, it was just uh, police everywhere, checkpoints, military, you know, tanks in the streets. Uh, you know, it was the police using these, uh, you know, these these sunglasses. They could look at you, and they could identify you with, you know, a facial recognition tech on their sunglasses. You know, people were scared. They were being taken off to these concentration camps. They were using um, an artificial intelligence system called uh, the IJOP, the Integrated Joint Operations Platform. And this system um, was being used for pre-crime. Um, so if you've ever seen the movie Minority Report, it was sort of like that with Tom Cruise. They would swoop in, uh, take away people in the middle of the night because they're, um, they, the, the computer system believes that they're going to be a terrorist threat in the future. They're, they're planning a terrorist attack. The seeds of terrorism have entered their minds. And they actually use this kind of language, like it's a virus inside you and we have to cure you. And they would take them away to camps. It was truly terrifying. So I knew that once I saw this, this was going to be uh, you know, a, a tragedy. I mean, it was going to be a major tragedy of our century. And you know, it had to be documented while the doors in China were at least still open a little bit. You know, uh, for, I've seen Minority Report. Presumably they didn't have the the empaths comatose in the pool thinking, you know, predicting the future as part of the system. And I don't mean to take this That's lightly. This is, a hugely, <laughs> this is a hugely important story, but I, I, and not till I kind of bring my own experience into it, but I was in Kashgar in, I think, 2007 on a Codel. And it really, just to kind of emphasize your point, it was kind of, it was lovely town, old city with a market, uh, more, almost seemingly more Middle Eastern than Chinese. And it was, it's hard to imagine for me, I mean, I haven't been back there since, it's hard to imagine that this has turned into a police state. It just 
didn't seem like it, it was like an like a wild like an old old town in the wild wild west. You know, is is kind of dusty and and there's desert right outside the city and um. It just it just doesn't like I can't figure out how they got from there to this police state situation. So uh, tell us more about kind of the mechanisms the Chinese used and this and this, um, you know, this minority report like pre-crime concept. What's the tell us about facial recognition, about the computers, the AI. How does that manifest itself as you're as you're walking around the city? Yes. So. um so, so just to give you an idea of this, uh, so the typical, you know, Uyghur resident of the city will wake up in the morning, and from the time they wake up to the time they go to bed, uh, you know, they will be constantly monitored by this technology and by the state. I mean, so they'll wake up, and literally, some um, Uyghur women in particular, have, they'll wake up next to a government minder. The government has been sending uh, minders, like teachers, into their homes. So, say, you know, your husband has been taken away to a camp. Uh, you'll wake up next to this minder who, you know, the government claims that they're not sexually assaulting them, but this is a police state and you can't really believe, uh, you know, believe everything they say. Um, and the the minder will, you know, bring them into the, the living room for breakfast. They'll uh, talk about party ideology. They'll sometimes do this in front of government cameras that are installed inside their homes, something terrifying that I've documented and the minder will just test their ideology, make sure that they're loyal. Do you know, do you know what the, the so they, they call them the three evils, um, which are these uh, 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 terrorism, uh, radicalism, and, and ethnic nationalism, these forces that are threatening to break apart China. Like, do you stand against that? They'll ask these, these uh, you know, 1984-esque questions. And then, so let's say, you know, you go to the grocery store, go to the market, you have to scan your national ID card to get in. Um, you know, if, if there's something on your record that's suspicious, uh, you could be flagged as you're trying to get into the market. Your your ID card will will show like they have different levels. So they'll show either you're trustworthy or you're untrustworthy or you're somewhere in the middle. And if it flashes up and says you're untrustworthy, then you, you'll be stopped at the shop or the the gas station. The police will interrogate you might, you know, send you to the police station for more questioning and then send you to a camp if they need to. Um, and this process, it, it's just an everyday process uh, of all the Uyghurs who I spoke to who are now refugees were just exhausted and terrified um, by the the level of intrusion of this technology. So, you know, anything can go wrong at any moment and get you in the eyes of the police. So this, you know, just to give you one example, um, if you're, say, found with religious materials, especially Islamic materials, if you're found, say, with like, a Quran in your car or a Quran app on your phone, um, that's that's enough to deem you untrustworthy, and the, the AI system will say that you need to be sent to a camp. Um, another example is traveling overseas. If you travel to any one of these many um, sensitive nations, they're deemed sensitive by the Chinese Communist Party, usually Middle Eastern countries, you know, if you go to Turkey, if you go to, um, you know, Pakistan or somewhere like that, uh, you're, a, you're a security threat and they're going to detain you when you get back. Um, I, I mean, it just goes on and on. And it's not just religious based. I, I've seen some truly bizarre, uh, some bizarre examples in, in Communist Party documents and state documents. They'll say things like, you know, if, if you find that there's somebody who, say, has... Um, the weirdest one it was like if they if they bought a rope and a tent and like camping tools 
that's a sign that they might be a terrorist threat and they should be questioned uh, over that. The other one is like if they start smoking suddenly, you find, you know, like the AI finds that they haven't been smoking on, you know, they, they have cameras watching them. You haven't been smoking for a long time, but suddenly you start smoking cigarettes or buying cigarettes at the local shop. That's a sign of, you know, something being wrong. So it's it's paranoia. The state sees everything. The AI sees everything. And it's just, you know, everyone and everything that they do is, you know, a p- potential threat to the state. Is How should we be thinking about uh, the people in Xinjiang province? Should we think about it um, as, as, as them as Muslims, as Uyghurs? Is it a religious issue? Is it uh, an ethnic issue? Is it both? And then uh, is the Chinese government monitoring everyone in Xinjiang province or is it just a certain segment of the population? So it's a mixture of a it's it's an ethnic issue. It's also a religious issue. The The Uyghur people. Um, they follow um, they, they follow Sunni Islam and uh, you know Central Asian Islam. The 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 track that they come from. You know we're we're not talking about you know Saudi Arabian uh, Wahhabism or you know what's happening in Iran with this you know, extremism, state sponsored extremism. Um, in my experience, the the Islamic practices of the Uyghur population tend to be quite moderate. Um, there are some extremists. There are people who've traveled to Syria and they've, you know, fought, uh, you know, fought in Syria, like with with groups that are aligned with ISIS. But um, it's such a small number. I mean, by my, I, I've tried to count them because there aren't that many, and my count is, you know, there's about 161 people I've been able to document. And I say that because I've been in touch, you know, through apps um, with some of the the fighters out there in the past, uh, in what is now Kurdistan, um, and so the. Um, like, it's not really a terrorist problem, though there is, you know, there is a terrorist threat among a certain part of the population. Uh, China has been targeted by terrorists before. There was one attempted airplane hijacking in, in the region. Uh, and this was, uh, it was about, it was about 10 years ago. It was the first, uh, I think the first attempted hijacking since 9-11, actually. Uh, but the hijackers were foiled. Um, you know, there were also a few cases of uh, grenade attacks. There was one assassination of an imam who um, the extremists thought was being too, you know, too pro-China or too moderate. So it does happen. Um, but we also have to take these reports with a grain of salt because it's really difficult to vet and verify what appears in Chinese state media. This could be propaganda. So um, I, I tend to see it more of an ethnic, an issue of uh, ethnic separatism than a religious issue. Uh, the Uyghur people, um, you know, for, for many decades now, uh, many have wanted to break away and to form their own state called East Turkestan. Uh, and, you know, so West Turkestan would be the Central Asian states of Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and so forth. And East Turkestan would be the land of the Uyghurs in what is now Western China. That, that's really all this is. This is what it's really, this is really what it's about. It's about China trying to stop, you know, that separatist movement from flourishing. I, I was kind of I was going to ask you this later, but I want to ask it now. Um, why haven't we seen other Muslim countries or, or any Muslim countries, really, as far as I know, uh, kind of raise an objection to the way Muslims are being treated in China? It really comes down to the geopolitics and the money. Uh, I also spent a lot of time in Egypt where I was interviewing uh, Uyghurs who were who were uh, underground. They were just living in hiding. They were terrified because um, back in 2016 and 2017, uh, China brokered a deal with Egypt, and it, part of the deal was that uh, the Egyptian police would repatriate uh, Uyghur 
um, Uyghurs living in Egypt, and they they were living there legally. They had visas. They were typically they were studying um, at uh, local Islamic universities, or they you know they had run small businesses or restaurants. Um, and um, so, in the end, about ninety percent, according to one estimate, uh, of the the population of Uyghurs there, about eight thousand of them were all sent back to China, where uh, you know probably all of them were in concentration camps after all all of that. It's it's hard to say for sure because they don't release the data. Um, this happened. So, I mean, Egypt it, Egypt was one of the first uh, transgressors when it came to this um, kind of like this effect of Middle Eastern states. Uh, siding against a fellow Muslim population with the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and it's just because China has lots and lots of money. Um, and, you know, there, there are very few strings attached. It's just that the, the, the only strings that really are attached are that, you know, give us your Uyghurs. That's one. Uh, and two is, you know, don't recognize Taiwan. Um, there are a few others, but those are really the, the key, uh, you know, the, the key uh, factors there. And so the, um, you know, Egypt was the first, but since then, um, it's been other countries too. It's been, uh, so the UAE has been found to be running uh, like Chinese black sites for Uyghur suspects. Uh, Saudi Arabia has uh, repatriated Uyghurs back to China. Um, Iran has done this too. Uh, I'm just trying to think. There there are a few others. So Pakistan, um, the also so Kyrgyzstan, I believe, has, and also, so Kazakhstan is one of the few countries, uh, which is, interestingly, that has not been repatriating uh, people to China, which is a good sign. So, uh, you know, it, it really is a tragic situation, because it's just so, um, it's just so hypocritical, you know, it's, uh, it really is the height of hypocrisy, um, you know, because many of these nations, they, they use, you know, the, the, the existence of Israel or Israel's action, uh, you know, actions around the region as, you know, cause for anger, like cause for, uh, you know, cause for the Palestinian cause and, and all that. Uh, you know, they, they criticize how France uh, treats its Muslim population, you know, uh, forcing women to not wear the hijab and, and all that sort of thing. I mean, th- this is the, th- these are the kinds of issues that really get populist leaders moving in the Middle East that really get them a lot of popular support among their Muslim populations. But then when it comes to China and the Uyghurs, it's just silence, take the money, shut up. And that's that. Truly amazing. I want to ask you about uh, this uh, news story from a couple months ago, uh, where these police files from Xinjiang province were released, uh, thousands of documents, a lot of details came out. What did, what did you learn from that, what, what appears to be a really big security breach uh, on behalf of the Chinese government? Um, so personally, I, I didn't learn a whole lot that's new just because I've been tracking this topic for so long. But it's more about the deluge of data that came out, just the extent of um, the extent of the intrusion that was happening. Uh, it really was shocking just to see the level, you know, the, the level at which the government has gone to smear every single Uyghur person they can find to smear them as potential criminals and terrorists. And I think that, um, you know, what really shocked a lot of people was the human aspect of this. Um, So before this leak, there were a few leaks before in the past and, you know, they always release data. We would, we would figure out, you know, the number of people who had been taken to the camps, uh, why they had been taken to the camps, what they were under suspicion of doing 
but there were never really faces to those numbers. Um, and what was shocking about this leak was that it was also a leak of the mugshots. Uh, we got the mugshots of just, you know, I, I, hundreds of thousands, I believe, maybe even millions of, of people who were uh, at camps, who were under investigation for some, you know, false fabricated crime. Uh, we got to see what they looked like. We got to see, you know, the terror in their faces, the um, just the, the the sadness in their eyes as they know they're about to enter this concentration camp from which they might never leave, uh, despite never even having had a trial or being charged with anything. Uh, you know, it's just, uh, uh, you know, it's it's like, you know, that's a lot of Uyghurs who I know uh, were just extremely saddened to see those faces. Um, they went through the databases. They found family members and friends. Uh, and it was, you know, the, the part, so the, I guess if there is any upside to this, it's that, you know, now they know that they were taken to a camp. You know, a lot of people simply disappeared and they didn't know if they were dead or seriously injured or worse, but, you know, now at least they know that they're in a camp. Um, you know, that's still terrible. Uh, and, you know, it was just seeing those, you know, just, just seeing all the stuff, like, I, I, it's hard to put into words, um, just the level of suffering that the Uyghurs have had to go through since this, you know, this dystopian project started. And, you know, it's, it's a surreal feeling, you know, if you're a Uyghur refugee sitting in Washington, D.C., and you see, you know, your, your long lost cousin suddenly pop up in a mugshot uh, in a Chinese concentration camp. I mean, it's just, it's difficult to fathom what the shock is like in that situation. So let's talk about the the faces. Uh, clearly, uh, China's developed this this database of um, you know data on every single uh, sets of data on every single person. Clearly, including uh, what they look like. This facial recognition software. This this kind of um, malevolent use of what what is really a useful technology in a lot of cases, right? Like I use it probably a hundred times a day to open my phone. I used to get on a plane the other day. Um, what's the, so help us metaphysically here. Like, how do you, how do you think about these technological developments, which we're, we're not really going to stop, right? I mean, facial technology, facial recognition technology is here to stay. It's being used for this evil purpose. Is there some, how do we think about it? And is there some way countries like the United States and its, and its friends and allies can, um, perhaps turn the corner on this and see that these technologies are used for a better purpose? So the way I think about this uh, is that, you know, the, the world of George Orwell, um, you know, the world that the old uh, science fiction novelists had envisioned, Philip K. Dick, uh, you know, Isaac Asimov to some extent, uh, Orson Scott Card, there are all these sci-fi writers who just imagined these future worlds that were so fantastical and that just made uses of all these technologies for good and bad. Uh, there, were, there was even one uh, book called Stand on Zanzibar. It was published, I think, in 1968, and it accurately predicted the, like, that the world would be overpopulated. It predicted that, you know, it, it took place in 2010, uh, predicted America would have its first African-American president. Uh, the name of the president in the book was President Obomi, which is just totally hilarious. Uh, it's like, how could, you know, how could he have this foresight? It predicted the rise of China as a major power. Um, it's like, like the, the worlds that these writers predicted uh, were often so uncannily accurate in ways, like even if the exact technologies didn't pan out how they thought they would. 
And, uh, you know, like the world that we live in now, it is, it, it is the world that they envision. Like we've already passed that threshold. Uh, you know, they were thinking about the 20th century. They were thinking 50 to 100 years in advance. You know, and now we're at the stage where we're in that world and we're trying to figure out, okay, so we're already here and now what do we do about it? You know, how, how, how does our, how, how do our tools of government, our tools, you know, our, our development as a society, how do they catch up with the extreme pace of technological change that has just overtaken us, um, you know, since the 1990s? Uh, so, you know, in the case of China, which was already you know, an authoritarian state, um, there were great hopes uh, for many decades that, you know, it would globalize it, you know, that, that uh, incoming wealth would lead to uh, demands of its people for a democracy, you know, the rising middle class would want to reform. Um, that never happened. And, uh, and I think that was one of the, probably one of the worst falsehoods that we've been sold over the past 20 years. Or, that, or, they, or they killed it after the Tiananmen Square massacre. Yeah, yeah, they erased the memories. Um, the, the the propaganda of the People's Republic of China is very sophisticated. Uh, you know, when you go there and you've seen this, you're you're in this internet bubble where it's extremely difficult now to get outside information unless you, you know, unless you get a VPN. But regular people can't do that there. Um, it's just uh, you know, like uh, it, it's in hindsight, it's it's completely anticipated that China would be the one to uh, develop this kind of total surveillance dystopia first, the one that, you know, George Orwell thought about, the one uh, that these others, you know, that, that Philip K. Dick thought about with the uh, Minority Report, which was originally a novel. So the thing is that it's, it's not the same in America. We have, I mean, we do have the same technologies, but we have a radically different system of governance and we have, you know, loud, boisterous national conversations about how this tech is being used. Is it being used fairly? Is it being applied in the interests of civil liberties? Like, are we balancing our civil liberties with, you know, with a private company's right to own the IP? I mean, they've invested in it. They've, they've, they've contributed to the research and development. A lot of times they own the IP and, you know, to, to some extent they can do what they want with it as long as they don't infringe legally on the rights of regular Americans. Uh, these sorts of Debates have just been raging, uh, you know, especially since the uh, the George Floyd protests. I remember that's when it really picked up with questions about police surveillance. How are the police using facial recognition? Um, so, in a sense, I am, you know, optimistic that in America will will find a solution to these problems. Um, you know, maybe the solution won't be the best solution, but uh, nothing really compares to what is happening right now in Xinjiang, China. It's just that is the worst case scenario. Whereas I think we could put the U.S. on an eight out of ten in terms of the direction we're headed with tech. Ah, that's pretty optimistic uh, in the current environment. So I'm going to ask you a question that will indicate I am so far over my skis that I, I may be doing a, a flip in the air. But is is there an answer in the, you've you've covered technology uh, a kind of as you've been doing all of this in in Asia and here and and a lot of these sophisticated uh, advancements? Is there some is there an answer in the technological front either through blockchain technology or uh, cryptocurrencies and that kind of thing where individuals, no matter where they are, can do a better job of owning their data and the, and the kind of the aspect that they put forward in society that may be the alternative to this, you know, this really shocking Orwellian system that you've described. So I think that um, one of the problems we face now is that we tend to surrender our agency to technologists when it comes to thinking about technology. Um, this is sort of, it's similar to like back before the, so 
before the 2008 financial crisis, there was this um, this this effect in society in which, um, you know, the, the financiers, the bankers were sort of like the high priests and they controlled the language of finance and they would talk about these, you know, financial mechanisms and these, uh, you know, debt collateral debt obligations and so forth that it's like, you know, what are they talking about? I mean, most people, you know, I, I still can't even understand what all that really is, what it really means, what it really is. Um, and I think that we live in kind of a similar era today in which, um, you know, technologists sometimes, you know, talk about technology in in, in terms that sound uh, that sound quite advanced, but when you look underneath the surface at what it really means, um, these are quite simple uh, concepts that you know that you know we've had age-old solutions for for many centuries to a lot of the problems that we're facing now. So you know, like a blockchain, um, you know, that's essentially security for your bank. You know, that's just making sure that you know your money. If if the bank is robbed, um, you you have some kind of uh, you know system set up that shows that that's your money, that, you know, it's, it's safe, that it's protected. Um, that's really at a fundamental level what that means. And uh, so there was an interesting article recently in the Wall Street Journal, um, and the, the writer argued, it was an op-ed, uh, argued that, you know, after the, the Crypto Monday collapsed recently, so cryptocurrencies fell um, to another devastating low, which, you know, kind of isn't surprising, uh, they argued that look, the future of crypto, the future of a lot of this tech, it's not going to be in the hands of coders anymore. It's going to be in the hands of lawyers and lawmakers and regulators and politicians because we've passed the stage where we're you know, simply building and creating and tinkering with the tech. And now we're at the stage where it's so integrated into our everyday lives that um, you know, really only a national government uh, filled with elected lawmakers will hopefully be able to find some some kind of some kind of solution. I mean, maybe it won't be perfect, but we're beyond the coding stage now. We're beyond the early stage. Now it's time to think about how these are used. Thank you. Thank you for putting me in my place on on um, uh, surrendering agency to technologists. I like that. That's a great phrase. Um, let's let's go back to China. What uh, aside from what's going on in Xinjiang province, how do you how do you see the Chinese state in the rest of China and and are these techniques being used in the West, in Western China, going to be, or are they being used in the rest of the country? Yes. So Xinjiang was the, um, it it was the experiment. It was the original social experiment to see how far this tech could go and how it could be used against uh, what the Chinese government considers to be a subversive population. So ever since then, so this project began in 2016. Um, Since then, the same model has expanded through Tibet a place that, you know, many of us have forgotten because uh, it's just, it's been around so long and Xinjiang sort of like the new, you know, the new civil liberties problem. Um, so Tibet, also Inner Mongolia, uh, another region that tends to get overlooked in China when it comes to repression. Uh, and then a lighter version of many of these same tools have expanded across the country, including to Beijing and Shanghai, the major uh, urban centers. So, I mean, this, this, this kind of surveillance system, it's familiar uh, to the regular Chinese out on the, out on the coast in addition to the, the inner part of the country. We saw these systems get more and more repressive uh, under the COVID lockdown. So Shanghai was locked down for a long time. There were drones that were flying around. And like if you were sitting on your balcony, even the drone would come by and, you know, snap your picture, get your facial recognition. And then they, you know, they'd find you because you're outside on your balcony. Like it was, tr- it was truly 
just insane, the level of um, repression that happened there. So uh, that has since relaxed. The, those lockdowns have ended. But the point is that the government has these tools now, and they can use it when and where they choose and under what circumstances. Um, so, you know, China has this all over the country now. Now the question is, is China exporting it? And the answer is yes, they have been enthusiastically exporting this tech, um, especially in the era after uh, trade sanctions have been implemented by the, the European Union and the American government. Um, companies such as Huawei, uh, as well as MIGV, SenseTime, these are all companies involved in these atrocities that it, you know they've been uh, they've been sanctioned for human rights violations, um, you know for all sorts of other things too. Uh, and now they need to find markets, you know, all over the world. And you know, where are those best markets? If you're selling uh, authoritarian surveillance technology, you're going to try to find other authoritarian regimes that need it. So. We've seen many um, exports to parts of Central Asia, in particular, uh, Kazakhstan, uh, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan. These are all authoritarian regimes. Also, parts of um, Southeast Asia. I know that Cambodia has been a major, major importer of Chinese tech, and that's also a major Chinese uh, ally. Uh, Sub-Saharan Africa has seen a lot of action. Uganda used Chinese technology to spy on the opposition to hack their Facebook accounts. Um, and also countries like Venezuela, um, Cuba has been a big importer. I know that Russia has been interested in a lot of this tech, but one of the big questions that still remains is, you know, how close are Russia and China going to come together on this topic of authoritarian surveillance? Because, you know, they, they do have a lot of shared interests, but historically they haven't always gotten along. There's always been, you know, those Sino-Soviet splits that, that happen every few decades. And, you know, are they going to find common ground to you know, to do this or are they not? And yeah, maybe you know more about that than me. That's a little out of my area. Uh, yeah. I don't know if I, I, I don't know the answer, but it seems to me like there, the, this, this treaty of friendship, extreme friendship or whatever it was, the, the term was, is, uh, is delusional. Their interests are so different in the grand scheme of things. At the end of the day, Russia has all these natural resources. Uh, China has all these people. You can kind of see where it's going. Uh, and at some point, Russia is going to, uh, to be much more worried than it is. Um, Jeffrey, kind of uh, exit question, I guess. Uh, you talked about authoritarian, uh, other authoritarian countries importing this technology and this, this capability. What's the reaction been among countries that are not authoritarian? How has India reacted? How have other democratic neighbors in Eurasia responded to what China's doing? Is this, is this doing anything to promote China's brand in the world? It is to some extent. It depends on the country, ultimately. Um, so India has been hostile to Chinese technology, but that's because you know, there have been a few episodes over the past few years in which, you know, Chinese and Indian soldiers have had like literal fistfights, you know, out at the, the Himalayan border. Uh, and there was one case a couple of years ago where, um, you know, a few, a few people even died in one of these big brawls that happened. Uh, so there's, you know, India, the Indian government has enormous distrust of China. And if anything, as part of these quad negotiations, India has moved closer to, you know, Japan, um, America, even Vietnam, former American foe now turned kind of a you know quasi ally or a cautious ally. Um, so uh, India at one point did ban TikTok. I don't know if that it's a, TikTok is the Chinese uh, owned app. 
I don't know if that ban is still in place. There, there has also been a lot of talk in America too, beginning with the Trump administration of banning TikTok here as well. It could be a, a surveillance threat since it, it's, uh, it's essentially getting facial images of every uh, person who uses it, which would feed into, you know, potent- if, if the Chinese government wanted it to do this, it could feed into facial recognition technology. And it is possible that they could get their hands on that, uh, on that tech if they wanted to, though TikTok denies that. Um, other countries, so, you know, I mentioned India, um, Pakistan has been warming up to China for the past uh, decade on enormous uh, grounds. They've been a huge recipient of Belt and Road, um, belt, so these Belt and Road projects. Belt and Road is a major Chinese uh, infrastructure planning uh, project all over the world. It, it's, it, it consists of trillions of dollars. It just disparate, you know, like oil rigs and roads and dams and so forth that are meant to develop, you know, third world countries that don't have a lot of this. Uh, Another country, so speaking of Asia, Sri Lanka, a nation that is currently seeing spasms and, you know, potential government collapse. Um, the, The test in Sri Lanka now, so Sri Lanka has received all kinds of loans. Um, it's been the recipient of a major port funded by Chinese money. The question now is, you know, when Sri Lanka does default, uh, and it probably will, what is China going to do about that? Is China going to come in according to the agreements that they have and seize, you know, these, the, the ports, see, you know, like seize Sri Lankan, um, you know, government owned infrastructure? Like, is, is China just going to take over the country and turn it into a de facto colony? Uh, we don't really know yet, uh, but that's one of the big fears right now. Jeffrey, this is fantastic. Um, really, really great stuff. Thank you for being our uh, the first guest on our uh, our human rights series this summer. Really, uh, I think opened opened my eyes, opened a lot of people's eyes about really just just how crazy this situation is in Xinjiang province. Thank you, Lester. It was a pleasure to be on. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Gabriella Hensinger and Gabriel Otis for research and production assistance. Join us next time as we continue through the summer to shed greater light on this new means of repression, highlighting aggressive expansionist policies that violate the rights of citizens around the globe and proposing serious solutions the United States can take to secure and promote democratic values. 